Once again, to all our first-time guests, um, yeah, glad to have you here. Uh, it's an honor to be able to look out each week and just to see faces and to be reminded of the faithfulness of God um, seen as we look at all of y'all. So grateful to be here. We love y'all. If there's anything that we can ever do to serve you, uh, please let us know. So Psalm 3, let's read from God's word and let's get right in. It says this. Lord, how my foes increase. There are many who attack me. Many say about me, there is no help for him in God. But you, Lord, are a shield around me, my glory, and the one who lifts up my head. I cry aloud to the Lord, and he answers me from his holy mountain. I lie down and sleep. I wake up again because the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of thousands of people who have taken this stand against me on every side. Sometimes those people take this stand on the inside as we hear those thoughts inside of our head, don't they? Rise up, Lord. Save me, my God. You strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. May your blessing be on your people. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we can read these words and rejoice because we know that all of them are true, Father. God, I pray that, that as we read your word and get, some, get to spend some time with it today, that it wouldn't just be clear to us, but it would be made real to us, Father, and we would be those that have a faith that can rest and sleep, knowing that you never do, Father. Would you please help us today? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I invite you to take your seats. It's going to get better. The goal of that phrase is to help you right now. It's going to get better. Is a phrase that's aimed at people that are going through hard times and need real relief right now. It's going to get better. How often have you heard that phrase? How often has it actually helped you? Sometimes it really feels like a catch-all, right? It feels like this stopgap um, equivalent to the put some ice on it, right? Uh, the put some ice on it advice is fine for small problems. If you scrape your knees, put some ice on it. But if you have a severed leg and somebody tells you put some ice on it, you would say, I know what you're getting at, but that's not helpful. It's going to get better is a phrase that's often said, but it's seldom believed. General well wishes don't really do all that we need them to do for particular and specific problems. The truth is that many of us have come in here this morning with not just scraped knees, but big problems that keep us up at night and prevent us from sleeping 
and it's going to get better doesn't do much for us. We feel like we're in a battlefield, and the question is, how do you go to sleep in a war zone? It's going to get better. Feels hollow. It feels like that big bag of chips that you buy at the store and it looks full and then you crack it open and you see that there's 14 chips at the bottom. It feels like a pie with no filling. It looks promising, but you cut in and it's empty. And so here's what I want to do today. I want to fill in that phrase, it's going to get better. And the way that we fill that in is with God's word, specifically with the Psalms. If you look at Psalm 1, it starts off with the phrase, this book starts off with the phrase or with the word, how happy or how blessed. That the goal of this book is to take people that are downcast or downtrodden and to lift up their eyes so that now they look at their lives and they say, how happy. But Psalms aren't just meant to change your mood. There's a lot of things that you can do to change your mood. You can change your mood by imagining things. But what Psalms is meant to do is not to help you to imagine something that will help change your mood. But its, help, it's, its aim is to help you see reality for what it truly is. So that as you see and look at how God interacts with you and I, that things change, that our moods change as a byproduct of us seeing life for how it really is psalms or the soundtrack or it's the soundtrack for a sad soul and it's meant to be streamed to be put on repeat greatest hits over and over set to music so that it sticks and my prayer is that it would stick inside of your soul let me set a little bit of context to where psalm 3 comes from if you look In your Bible, you may have a small title that says this, A Psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. Here's the context. King David is a guy that although he has the favor of God, although God calls him a man after his own heart, although God grants him kingship and a throne, he spends most of his life running. God promised him a throne. And before he ever got on the throne, the man who occupied that throne, whom he loved and trusted, tried to kill him and prevent him from getting on that throne. He's a man that knows what it is to feel a real sense of betrayal. But then he gets on the throne. And then he has kids. And when he's at, after he's on the throne, his son seeks to unseat him. From that throne. And again, he's there, he's in the place that God put him, and he feels betrayed. And here's why I bring all of that up because you go through the Psalms and you go through the life of David, and what you find is a man that was accustomed to sleeping on the battlefield. He should have been bitter, cynical, angry, untrusting, but we don't see any of that in his life. We see somebody that in the midst of these of these hardest times, has this unwavering confidence in the Lord that lets him go to sleep on the battlefield. And what would cause the rest of us to become bitter gives him a better relationship with the Lord. And how does that take place? Through prayer. 
So I'm just going to sneak this in right here. The application at the end of this is going to be pray. So you can just write that in big, bold letters. I'm going to fill that in at the end, but here's what I mean by that. If you find yourself here and you struggle with prayer, struggle with try to find that peace, one of the great things about Psalms is that Psalms are going to put words to the emotions that you have. So all that one has to do is sit back, listen, read what was said, and at every break, if you feel that that's you, just say amen or me too, right? Amen and me too are these short, concise phrases, but they're comprehensive. What that means is that somebody can give a dissertation about how they feel, and you don't even have to repeat all those same words. You just have to say, me too. So if that's you, and I promise it's not just me trying to get you all to talk back, but if you feel that at any point today, just say, me too. Me too. Here's my sermon in a sentence, and I'm just going to tip my scale at the start of it, and it goes like this. If your prayers reach God's ears, then you can fall asleep in his arms. If your prayers reach God's ears then you can or you should fall asleep in his arms. Verse 3 starts off with one word, forgotten, forgotten. Introductory lines are meant to grip you so that as soon as you read that, you say, me too, and I'm going to read this and tell me if you think me too. Verses 1 and 2, Lord, how my foes increase. There are many who attack me. Many who say about me, there is no help for him in God. How many of you know what it's like to feel forgotten? To feel forsaken? To feel like the problems that you have aren't just something that's in your head, but they're very real, right? So he looks and says, Lord, look, it seems like my hope is shrinking because my problems are growing. People tell me that it's supposed to get better, but as I look out, um, it's actually getting worse. And it's not just me that feels it. Look here at verse 2. He says, many say about me there is no help for him in God. It's not just his words. External testimony is showing that it's not just subjectively what he sees, but this is objective truth. Things are getting worse. Do you know what that feels like? Here's a little more context. In 2 Samuel chapter 16, David is running from his son Absalom. Feels like he finally gets to a place where there is reprieve, and a guy by the name of Shimei approaches him, and he says these words to him. David, you're a man of bloodshed. You're getting what you deserve. And do you know what he does? He calls back up David's sin. We talked about it a few weeks ago. David was a man who had everything from God, and yet he takes another man's wife, and then he kills the man so that he won't get caught. And so what this guy does is he calls it back up and says, David, your past has caught up with you, and you're in this place where don't even bother trying to call out to God. Because you're forgotten, you are forsaken. Can you imagine what that feels like? 
Some of you don't have to imagine because your conscience does this to you all the time. It brings your past up. It calls it back. It tells you that you're forsaken and forgotten. Do you know the only thing worse than being lost? The only thing worse than being lost is realizing that there's nobody coming to look for you. If you're lost, that's bad enough. But there's hope if you feel like there's a search party to come and get you. It's another thing to be lost and to know that nobody even knows that you're gone. There's a little word there at the end of verse 2. Selah. That means pause. Some scholars believe that this word is inserted not just for you to pause and reflect on all of what you just heard, but it's meant for us to pause and to take some time for the instruments that are playing to change their tune a bit. So if you feel low right now when you say, John, me too, I know that I feel forgotten, what he's saying is pause, it's going to get better. Because if your prayer can reach God's ears, then you can fall asleep in his arms. Forgotten. That's the first word. Here's the next word that I want you to think about or write down. Forward. Sometimes feeling forgotten or forsaken or abandoned can cause you and I to be stuck and to stay still. But he doesn't want that to take place. He wants you and I to continue to move forward. And the way that we move forward is by speaking forward. Have, have you ever met somebody who's, uh, whose voice didn't match what they looked like? Yeah. Last week, Mike Davis was getting married on Sunday, and so there's a group of us in a room, and we're sitting down, and our backs are turned to the wall, and the photographer starts to give us instructions. He walked into the room, and I expected to see this, like, six, eight, 300-pound, big, burly dude, and I turned around, and, uh, yeah, I saw this little, like, suave Puerto Rican cat, like, little. And so I told him, I'm like, brother, has anybody told you that uh, your voice is much bigger than you are? And he said, yeah, I, I get that all the time. My voice doesn't match what people uh, see of me. They hear my voice, and they think of something else, or they see me and they think of something else. I think that this is true with faith. Sometimes we hear about faith and we hear the product of what faith produces. Faith is meant to make us quiet and calm and fall asleep in God's arms. So we think that faith's voice is quiet, but I want you to know faith does not have an inside voice. Faith is loud, faith is bold, faith is audacious. Skip down to verse 4, right? Verse 4 says this, I cry aloud to the Lord and he answers me from his holy mountain. When he talks about this faith that he has in God, he's saying, I cry loudly. And what do you know about crying or words that come out when you cry? When you're crying and just angry and hurt and in desperation, do you know what doesn't come out? Calculation. 
composure. You mean all of what you say. You may not have meant to say it how you say it, but you mean what it is that you say. And it just comes out and it's bold. And what he's saying is my faith is loud. It's making me be very, very forward with God. Faith's practice may be quiet, but faith's proclamation is loud. And why is it loud? Because faith's action is rooted in God's identity, right? What faith does is rooted in who God is. Look here at verse 3. Verse 3 says this, look. But you, O Lord, are a shield around me, my glory. The one who lifts up my head. Sometimes our frustrations or our problems can have you and I stuck because we start to form our identity, who we are and what we're worth. We start to form that based on our struggle. So we see the problems, the frustrations, the things that we get hung up on, and we start to identify ourselves based on those things. But look at what the psalmist does. In verse 3, who's he talking about? Is he talking about God or himself? Yes. Both. Look at these words. Look, but you, O Lord, are a shield around me. He's talking about the strength of God, but what's he saying of, uh, about himself? God, I'm not forgotten. I'm protected. You are not just glory, my glory. What's he saying? God, you're glorious, but I'm yours, so my honor comes from you. You are the lifter of my head. What is he saying? God, you bring joy and encouragement generally but you bring it specifically to me right here and right now. What he's saying is his identity is totally and completely captured in God. And we hear that all the time about trying to make our identity in God, but we don't know what identity is. Here's the best way that I've heard identity described. Identity is this, your sense of self, who you are, and your sense of worth. Why do I matter? Why am I valuable? Right? So your sense of self, I'm John. And why do I matter? These are the things that we fill in the blank with. I'm John, and I'm a father. I matter because I have a daughter. I'm John, and I'm a husband. I matter because I have a wife. I'm John, and I'm my job. I'm John, and I'm my accolades. I'm John, and I'm my fill in the blank. And if you fill in the blank with anything else, that anything else can be taken from you, and it eventually will be. But what he's saying is, no, no, listen. My God, you are a shield around me. Regardless of what my frustrations look like, I'm yours. God, you are my glory. Regardless of how problems may cause how I feel to rise and fall, what's true about me is that I'm connected to you. 
God, you're the lifter of my head, regardless of all the weights that I'm carrying in life that cause me to feel weighed down and feel like I have no hope and a future. God, you're the one that comes alongside and lifts my head for me to look forward. That's what it means for our identity to be completely in God. And though he's surrounded, the most important thing about this psalm is he refers to God as a shield around him. This is like um, insurance, right? Uh, Richard's going to remember this story where sophomores at Baylor, Richard goes home for the summer, Richard gets a car. Richard gets this nice Mitsubishi Galant, it's gray, it's right, sleek, you know, you got the CD player, he doesn't have a tape deck anymore, it's just the CD player. And Richard has insurance on the car. Richard goes to Sonic one day, and he backs up his car into a yellow pole, so he has this big dent in the back of his car. And he says, well, it's fine, I've got insurance. So he calls up the insurance, and what they say is, you have liability insurance. Liability insurance is this. It protects others against harm that you do to them. But it does not protect you against harm that's done to you. So your insurance, your protection is only as good as your ability to not back up into poles. When the Bible says that God is a shield around me, it's like full coverage. Full coverage says this. What a bank does is they say, uh, you may think that you bought the car, but really we, the bank, bought the car and you're going to pay us back. We love and value our car so much that we're going to require you to get full coverage. We don't want to put our confidence in you. We don't want the protection of our investment to rest in how good you can protect it. So what we'll do is we're going to put a shield around the car because we love it so much. So if you cause harm on somebody else, or if somebody else causes harm on you, or if you cause harm on you, you're protected. What David says is, I just don't have a shield that's dependent on how good I can wield it. What he's saying is, what makes me able to call out to God is that this shield is around me. I'm, I'm fully covered. Do you remember playing rock, paper, scissors as a kid? And we always had that one friend that when we would do like rock, paper, scissors, he'd do like something and he said, I'm a bazooka with a shield. And you say, well, that's not fair. You're inserting a category that makes you completely invincible and unbeatable. What David is saying is, No, God, because I'm on your team, I'm not forgotten. I'm inserting a category that makes me invincible and unbeatable. And it's in light of knowing that God is like this, that he's going to pray and cry out loud and pray these very audacious, big prayers. There's a guy that's says it like this, if one gazes too long upon the enemy and his might, the enemy grows in mind's eye to gigantic proportions. The hypnotic power of the enemy 
is broken when one turns one's gaze forward towards God. Our problems seem bigger than they are because we spend so much time looking at those problems. Even a penny can block out the sun if you hold it close enough to your eyes. Your trouble can block out the goodness of God if that's what you put forward. And what he's saying is, listen, the truth is I'm not forgotten. I'm going to put God forward in front of my eyes, and I'm going to be forward. I'm going to cry loud. Church, where have you forgotten the faithfulness of God? It's this forgetfulness about who God is and what God does that fosters uncertainty in prayers and encourages a timidity that the Bible knows nothing about. You look through the song, and if you're going to pray me too with any of these prayers, what you're going to find is David is going to continually pray very, very big things from God because he knows that he serves a very big God. So let me challenge you to do this one thing. As you find yourself gripped with trouble or frustration or burden surrounding you, and you're tempted to pray, don't leave those prayers in your head. And I don't want to make too much of this point, but there is something about praying out loud that causes us to get out of our own heads. And as we speak these words, we're reminded that we're not just thinking well wishes towards some being. We are actually talking to a God. This is why the Bible encourages us to pray not just with ourselves and for ourselves, but with others and for others, right? Praying with other people is not a loophole. It's not as if your prayers by yourself in your closet are worth more than prayers with a group of folks. It's often in the act of praying with a group of folks that we are reminded of the reality of God in a way that we're not just when we're by ourselves. I remember our sister, uh, Alicia Harris, a few months ago, um, called me and Chandra up on the phone, and we just had a friend on our heart that we were concerned of who felt themselves very much in Psalm 3, 1 through 2, forgotten and forsaken by God. And she says, can I come over and can we just pray? So she comes over at 9 o'clock, which most of y'all know is past my bedtime. And we sit, and for about 45 minutes, we just sit and talk and pray and cry out loud, being very forward with God. And do you know what took place inside of us? Verse 5. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of thousands of people who have taken their stand against me on every side. If you know that your prayers have reached God's ears, you can fall asleep in his arms. That when we feel forgotten, you and I can be very forward with God. And when we are forward with God, do you know what it does? It gives you and I the freedom to fall back. 
to fall back. Yesterday was my daughter's uh, birthday. She turned two. And so it was a day of reminiscing and being reminded of just God's faithfulness in, in the course of the past two years. Um, and one of the sweetest times in our life was when she first came home from the hospital. And she's in the bassinet right next to, to my wife. And there would be certain times where she would cry and cry and cry and cry. And she would have just eaten. So she didn't want any food. She wasn't wet. She didn't need to be changed. But babies don't have this thing called object permanence. Object permanence is this. Knowing that just because I can't see something doesn't mean that it's not there. So as the lights are dark in the room and she can't see us, she cries. And cries aloud and puts very forward cries. And what my wife would do is she would just slip her hand up in there, pat her on the back. And as soon as she was sure that her cries had reached my wife's ears, she fell asleep in her arms. And this is what David is saying to us. Are you anxious? Are you tired, filled with sleepless nights, feeling like the only way that you can rest is if God absolutely changes everything right now? I want you to know that doesn't have to be the case. David was a man that was accustomed to being able to sleep in the war zone. I love verse 6 because it reminds us David doesn't sleep because his problems are gone. He sleeps because his, he knows that his problems aren't just his problems. God is a shield, not an eraser. Think more in terms of whiteout, not an eraser. An eraser... There's a mark on the sheet, it takes it off. When you write in pen, you don't just erase it, but you say, but I don't want this to have any bearing on how my sheet looks. I don't want this to have any bearing on, on the peace that I get when I just stare at a clean slate. He says, all right, those marks are still very much there, but I'm going to cover them. And so what he's saying here is that I can fall back because I know I'm completely in God's arms. Your sleep and rest isn't a luxury in peacetime. Sleep is often more of a necessity in wartime than it is in peacetime. So the uh, military has this thing where they found out if soldiers are on the battlefield and they are anxious and tired, it is actually more of a danger than the war itself. Because they're going to make mistakes that aren't just going to hurt them, but are going to hurt everybody around them. I want you to know your anxiety is the same way. Your anxiety helps 
nobody, and it has the potential to harm everyone. So what the military did was this. They came up with a way to train people to fall asleep in the midst of a war zone. And there have been a ton of books that have come out, but here's what they say. There's a military secret to being able to fall asleep in two minutes. Tyler Gilbert, that's a part of the church, I don't know if he knows this, but he practices it. That brother can fall asleep anywhere. There's four things that you need to do. And so they'll say this. One, you relax your face muscles, just starting with your eyes and your cheekbones, you want to be relaxed. Then what you want to do is you want to drop your shoulders down as far as they can go, one at a time. Relax your left leg and then your right leg. The third step, they say breathe out, exhale. And then the last thing that they say is this. Close your eyes, and even if you're on a war zone, um, uh, imagine one of three things. One, that you're laying on a canoe on a still sea, and all you see is a blue sky. Or that you're in a black hammock in a pitch black room. Or to just say to yourself, don't think, don't think, don't think, until your mind is blank. And they found that for 95% of people, that works. In six weeks, they can learn how to fall asleep anywhere. Here's the problem with that. That tool is largely based on how good your imagination is and how well you can just block things out. There's certain problems that we face that regardless of how good your imagination is, you know that it's hard to just block out. And you don't want to imagine up a solution. You want for there to be a real one. If my problems aren't make-believe, then I don't want my solution to be make-believe either. And, And you may read this and say, John, this is good that David had this confidence and he could lie down. He feels forsaken completely by God, but he prays and gives his request to God and and he can put all these thoughts out of my head and you may say, John, that's great. And I know I haven't done the same things that he has. Murder, killing, uh, adultery, but you may say, John, I cannot get the things that I have done out of my head. You may say, I want to be able to fall asleep in God's arms. But every time I lie down, all of my sin and all the shame of the things that I've done and the things that have been done to me come back up. You may say, I want to fall asleep in God's arms. But like Charles Spurgeon, he said before he met Jesus that whenever he read the Bible, it seemed as if all the texts about condemnation and sin were in capital bold letters. What I'm not going to ask you to do is to use your imagination. What I am going to ask you to do is to look at an actual person. And that actual person that we are called to look at that can enable us to fall back and fall asleep in God's arms is Jesus. Jesus, much like David, was a guy that came into the world and God promised him the throne. 
And before he was on the throne, kings, the very people that he created, tried to kill him. After the nation that he proclaimed and brought freedom to wanted to prop him up on the throne, the people that wanted to be there wanted to betray him. So do you know what they did? They put him up on a cross and he was surrounded by people that said the same things that David's accusers said to him. He was surrounded by the same people that say the same thing that our consciences say to us. Because of what you've done, there's no help for you in God. And I want you to know, Jesus Christ on the cross was forsaken by God. All of the sins and failures of humanity was placed on him. And he felt this being forsaken by God, feeling God's wrath in order that you and I would know this. For those of us that have stepped back from trying to find our identity in things that we do and unite finding our identity in Christ, praying and putting our trust in him, do you know what we can know for absolutely sure? That any charge that is brought up against you that God has forgotten about you is a lie. A good friend of mine puts it like this. Satan knows our name, but calls us by our sin. God knows our sin, but calls us by our name. Jesus on the cross traded places with us. He was forsaken and forgotten. So that he would be the last of God's children to ever have to pray that prayer. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You and I may feel like we have because we don't have that object permanence to know that even though we can't see or feel God at work. To know that even though we are surrounded by accusers on the outside and inside, we may not feel like God is there. Because we can't see him, but that is a complete untruth. If Jesus was really forsaken, then that means that you are never forsaken. That if your prayers can reach God's ears, and they do because they don't ride the coattails of our performance. They ride the coattails of Christ. If they reach God's ears, then you and I can fall asleep in God's even if that sleep is the final sleep of death. Even if the absolute worst takes place and you aren't delivered from the thing that you hope to be delivered from this side of eternity. Look at Christ's words in Luke twenty-three forty-six. if you think I'm making too much of this point. And he says this, look, and Jesus called out with a loud voice. Father, into your hands, I entrust my spirit. Saying this, he breathed his last. He went to sleep, but it wasn't his final sleep. He awoke three days later to proclaim to all of us who feel forgotten and forsaken, you are not. 
What does that give to us? For those of us that feel forgotten and are forward with God and speak forwardly with him, we can fall back and be able to rest in his arms. You and I can leave our problems with Jesus and then leave them alone. You and I can sleep because Jesus never does. The clearest sign of faith is not working for our peace because we know that we serve a God that never stops working. And what we get is the favor of God. Look here at verse 7. Rise up, Lord. Save me, my God. You strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of of the wicked. What it's saying is, listen, God is more than just a shield. That for those of us that have experienced Christ and know what it is to have our identity in him, we do not have to live lives on the defensive all the time. What he's saying is that the great serpent of old has caught a left hook to the mouth and has been defamed. You do not have to fear a snake that has no teeth. You do not have to fear depression that has no teeth. You do not have to fear being downcast. It has no teeth. You do not have to fear your joblessness. It has no teeth. You do not have to fear false accusations that are made to disparage your character. It has no teeth. Even if a thousand enemies surround, they have no teeth. Verse 8, look, salvation belongs to the Lord. May your blessing be on your people. I think it ends off with this to help you and I know that we do not have to settle for just surviving and barely making it. But for those of us that truly live with a sense of God's favor, it doesn't just give us a courage in the way that we pray. It gives us a courage as we live our lives in in the day to day. It gives us the courage that we need not to stay away from danger, but to be able to move into the hardest places. Because we know even if a thousand enemies surround me, I have nothing to fear. It gives you and I courage to be able to face the things that we feel like are unfaceable because we know that our God is a shield around us that supports us. It's like this. It means that you do not have to see what life throws your way to commit your life fully and finally to the Lord Jesus. There's this thing in spades, the game spades, called blind six, right, or blind seven. And for those of y'all that don't play spades, it's this when you get down really, really big, and you can only do this when you're down really, really big. You say, before the cards are dealt, I'm going to guarantee that we get six books. Yeah, yeah, seven books. And you do not do this if you have a spades partner that you don't trust. 
But if you have a partner that's absolutely trustworthy, what you can say is, I don't have to see the cards that I get. I know that, I know that I'm good. I know that we'll be good. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to put all of my confidence in them, and we're going to work, and we're, we're, we're going to run this thing. One of my favorite hymns is Praise to the Lord the Almighty, and I just want to read you all this third stanza that I feel like captures Psalm 3. It says this, Praise to the Lord who will prosper your work and defend you. Surely his goodness and mercy shall daily attend you. And we don't use this word much, but it's ponder anew what the Almighty can do. If you're going to use your imagination, think about the ways that God can work. Think about his ability and the fact that impossible with God is impossible. That should be our meditation. And when we do that, we can be reminded that if he befriends us, if we are his people, He can do the impossible. And for those of you that are like, John, I don't know if I'm good enough to be his people. Here's the criteria to be God's people. You have to feel a sense of frustration with the life that you have right now. You have to feel a sense of desperation. I I want things to change. I want to have hope but I can't do it. If you have those two things, if you have need, that's the prerequisite. You have all that you need to be one of his people. Do you have need? Do you feel forgotten? It can get better. It's going to get better. And I hope that that's not just a hollow phrase anymore. I hope it's filled in with the goodness of God, who is your shield, your glory, and the lifter of your head. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful that you are the one that guides and protects us. We ask that this would be a reality to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.